in the sixth chapter of Hosea this morning. So if you've got your Bible and would like to open and turn there, that is where we're going to be studying together this morning. Our gentlemen are handing out Bibles. If you need one, raise your hand and they'll bring one to your seat. Otherwise, you'll be getting a pencil and note sheets passed around as well. Hopefully those are an aid to your learning this morning. Uh, as a church, we are committed to teaching the full counsel of Scripture. And we want to teach as much as we can about the depth and, and the detail of this God that we have come to serve. And there may be times on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or in a Bible study class or in Sunday school when you're hearing concepts that may be foreign to you, when you're learning things that might be a little bit over your head. Do not get discouraged by that, friends. It is good to be exposed to the depths of the wonder of God. I had a dear friend um, take my wife and I out to dinner just a few weeks back to a really fancy restaurant out in Napa. And I'm not much of a foodie. I can't tell you the difference between a $200 steak and a $20 steak, right? And I, I tell you, as we sat at that table, just the, the amount of food that was brought out and the details of that food, I could tell that there was much prep that had gone into that food, that there was, there was much love and care in the recipes and the preparation and, and the, the ingredients seemed to be of the highest quality. But I sat there knowing that I could not appreciate it as much as some other people could that there were parts and details of that food that were just lost on a, a, a lug like me. But I still ate it. <laughs> and it was delicious, okay? So the, the level of understanding that I could grab a hold of, it was a wonderful meal, and I was grateful for it. And I think that's how we should approach the preaching of God's Word, that we should not insist that people only preach what we can understand. That's, that's not really the point. Let the beauty of God be put on display. And whatever you can grab hold of, rejoice in it, enjoy it, consider it as beautiful and diverse and wonderful. And then as you eat more of the bread of life, as you feast more upon his word, the more details will become apparent to you. You'll begin to be able to understand and appreciate the word of God all the more. So please do not be intimidated when we preach concepts that, that may be new to you or that, that might seem very complex and that you can't grab at first dwell with us, continue to strive with us, and let the Word open your eyes to new things that you've never enjoyed about God before. Uh, even the best preaching we have to give to the Lord is an offering far too small. And so we preach the best we can, and we learn the best we can, and we trust that God is using all of these things to draw us along the path and lead us near to Him. So before we grab hold of these verses, we're going to be examining today in chapter 6, I want to bounce back for a moment to the hopeful foreshadowing of verse 2 in chapter 6, which we looked at last week. Hosea has had to bring to light some very disheartening things to the nation of Israel. He has been tasked with revealing to the northern kingdom not only their sin, but God's determination to bring judgment upon them because of their sin. However, throughout this prophecy, Hosea periodically reminds his people that while their love for God has often been fickle and unreliable and weak and faithless, despite the fact that their love for God has fallen short, God's faithfulness and steadfast love has remained as perfect as it has ever been. Hope remains for those who are truly trusting in Yahweh, even those who are entangled in sin, even those who are struggling and battling the flesh, hope remains because our hope is not in our obedience, but it is in the perfection and the mercy of our Lord God. 
So Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, you may remember from last week if you were here, said, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now, some 700 years after Hosea writes this, the Apostle Paul speaks at length about the important, uh, the important measure of resurrection that, that has impacted the church in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of Jesus and the eventual resurrection of all believers is an important doctrine that we should grab a hold of and that we should put our faith in. He makes the argument that if there is no such thing as resurrection, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, then Christians are of all men to be most pitied. In that section, Paul makes it very clear that the resurrection of Jesus happened after a set pattern. Where was that pattern found? It is played out according to the Scriptures. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, we see how critical the doctrine of the resurrection is, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, how? In accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, you might not be able to remember way back to 1 Corinthians 15 several months ago when we were studying that together, but which scriptures were, was Paul referring to? He was pointing to Hosea 6, 2. Is that the way the Israelites had understood Hosea 6 for the many years leading up to the coming of Messiah? No, every indication we have from scriptures is that they didn't understand Hosea 6. They didn't know that it was pointing to the Son of God coming down to earth taking on flesh, living a perfect, sinless life according to the law of Moses, and then suffering in the place of sinners to set the elect free from their sin. They didn't see it to mean that. But that doesn't mean that it didn't mean that. When we interpret the Scripture, there are many guidelines, there are many principles that we call hermeneutics that help us to understand what Scripture actually is trying to say to us. And one of those most important rules is called the analogy of faith. It's a hermeneutical principle that gives the highest priority in our interpretive hierarchy to the other scriptures that speak to that same issue. If something is confusing in one passage of scripture, ask yourself, what does the other scripture have to say about that passage? Rather than just coming up with theories and ideas from our imagination or our own logic and reason, we should ask, what has God said about this in other places? Let that light shine into this less bright area of Scripture so that we might better understand it. So here, God's Word through the Apostle Paul gives us the surest interpretation of God's Word through the prophet Isaiah. Jesus made, or rather Hosea, Jesus made it very clear that the Jews, including his own disciples, had not understood some of the Old Testament prophecies concerning him. We read in John 20, verses 8 through 9, and then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, this is the empty tomb scene after the resurrection, resurrection, resurrection of Christ. <laughs> he also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So even after Jesus offered himself up to die in our place, the disciples did not understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. This indicates that the ancient Interpreters did not realize Hosea 6.2 was speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah. 
In all likelihood, their interpretations probably figured more along the lines of Hosea 6 pointing to a national restoration of some kind. That though the northern kingdom had unraveled and fallen apart, that one day God would bring another national presence of Israel. That they would be autonomous again. That they would not be under the yoke of other kings and emperors. That's probably how they interpreted it. Turn your Bibles for a moment to Luke chapter 24. This is also speaking of that period of time right after the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. I want to read a couple of passages out of Luke 24. So if you have it open before you, that'll be helpful today. So in chapter 24, beginning in verse 24, Luke writes, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's Jesus meeting with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had left Jerusalem. They had went back to where they dwell, where they live. And Jesus had appeared to them in a veiled form and was helping to help uh, uh, reveal to them that the things that occurred in the last couple of days, these controversial events of the death and burial of Jesus and then this empty tomb had to happen the way that they happened because God had declared that they would through his holy scriptures. It goes on to say later in that same chapter in verse 45, or starting in verse 44 rather, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that's what we're doing this morning, friends. We are proclaiming the name of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scriptures declared hundreds of years before Christ that this would need to happen. And so Jesus had opened his disciples' eyes to the fact that God would raise up his son after three days in the tomb and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ would lead to the resurrection of all those who put their faith and trust in the Son of God. The prophecy of Hosea 6 was specifically designed to point towards his own resurrection, which secured their salvation. So despite the northern kingdom facing the loss of their national identity in the judgment that God was about to bring upon them, despite the great chastisement they would feel for their sin, because of Yahweh's goodness and mercy, there was still reason for them to have hope for the future. And I don't want us to lose track of that hope as we work through the following chapters that talk greatly about the failings of Israel. There is yet hope for God's people. However, the promise that things will one day resolve does not allow us to skip forward through the present tribulation that is at hand or to ignore the current process that God has ordained that will advance his people towards eventual redemption. And so here in chapter 6, if you'd like to turn back to Hosea in the Old Testament, following Hosea's plea to the people to return to the Lord and to press on to know him in a relational way, Hosea records a lament, a, a sad expression 
of brokenheartedness over the fact that the people of God are not there yet. Though he has urged them to turn back to God, they're not there yet. Though he has urged them, seek to know him, they're not ready to do so. They have not yet progressed to the point that their restoration is being realized. And so let's read this lament of the Lord. It starts in verse 4 of chapter 6 in Hosea. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. My judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Pray with me briefly. God, we praise you and thank you for your word. And we praise you for the continuity of it, that it is one story from beginning to end, a story of you creating man, of man turning away from you, of man earning damnation for himself, and of you through your great mercy, showing man that apart from him, there can be no salvation. This story is about you sending your son to redeem And so we are grateful, Lord God, to put our minds and hearts upon this story, to think about the words that you have given to us, to be edified by them, to be brought to a greater maturity as we understand your word bit by bit. We love you, God, and we thank you for giving us enlightenment this morning. Help us to walk away nearer to you because of what you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea's compassionate plea, return to God. Israel's apparent response according to the broken heart of Yahweh, indifference. Indifference to the warnings of the prophet. And so here in verses four through six, we have a change in voice. No longer is the prophet personally addressing his fellow countrymen, pleading with them to change. Now we hear God himself speaking through Hosea, contemplating what he must do as a result of his people's great stubbornness. God's lament over his people with this is, uh, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? And it extends to Judah as well. How am I supposed to respond to your lack of disregard when my prophet heralds to you and tells you to repent and to turn and to know God? What should I do when you ignore again and again? Now, this question is not asked by a God who is looking for advice from his people or who needs an answer to a question that he has not yet been able to solve. That's not the case here. How many of you as parents have asked your own children the question, what am I supposed to do when you continually break the laws of the house? You're not actually trying to get counsel from them about how you should parent them. You're showing them how much it hurts you to see them break this law again and again. And what a difficult position it puts you in as the parent who wants to bless and who wants joy and peace and unity in that house. But because of your love for the child, you need to bring chastisement. You need to correct them. You need to help them to understand the weight of what they have done wrong. And so God is asking the question, not because he needs an answer himself, but to drive the people to ask the question of themselves. What should a holy God do with his unrepentant people? This is An incredibly important question, friends, and it is one that is seldom thought out to its logical ends. Let's consider some possibilities here this morning as that question swirls in our minds. Should God continue to bless a holy 
to bless a people who have acted in an unholy way, who've consistently ignored and broken a law that is good and that is sanctified. At what point does God become an accessory to their sinful rebellion if he just continues to bless them and does nothing about it? At what point will we have to conclude that God is not, in fact, standing for justice, but is rather guilty of enabling the rebellion of a wayward people who are under his watchful care? Can God just continue to bless and grant grace to those who are in sin? Can he just over and over again pour out goodness to them? Here's a second possibility. Should God wait forever for them to see the error of their ways and repent with no limit to his patience? How could this tactic be anything less than negligence on the part of God? Is God merely a spectator waiting for us to get our acts together? No, God must act, right? A third possibility. Should God see the sin of his people and annihilate them? Should he utterly destroy these covenant breakers and bring swift and immediate justice upon them? That would be just, wouldn't it? Though total annihilation would cast shadows on God's covenant-keeping ability. There would be no more covenant people and some of the promises that God had made to them would remain unfulfilled at that point in history. And so the only option that continues to return as a good one is the severe mercy that God is warning them he's about to deliver. The people are not loving God the way that they ought to love him. They're not listening to the prophets he has sent to warn them. They are not seeing the way that is not only best for God, but is best for them and then obeying it. And so God must act upon this disobedience. He must show them the seriousness of their faithlessness. In the second half of verse 4, the Lord identifies the problem at the root of this lament for the northern kingdom. He says, Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now, these two images share a very similar sentiment. They're saying kind of the same thing with slightly different imagery. They both point to the allure of potential relief and comfort that dries up before it can actually do any good. You don't need me to tell you that Israel is a somewhat arid environment. You know, the landscape there does produce goods and food and crops, but it also goes through times of, of great heat and dryness. And so in an agricultural society like the Jews were living in, precipitation was of utmost importance to the ongoing of life in those areas. They needed the rains. Now what Hosea describes here as a morning cloud is the appearance of a cloud that formulates in the very early morning when moisture evaporates up from the ground through the night and the sun is not there yet to dry it up. These clouds bring about the illusion that a storm might be on the way to water the land and to give life to crops. But because these are just morning clouds, by the time the sun begins to make its course through the sky and it begins to exert its full heated power upon the moisture in the air, the temperatures begin to rise and the droplets in the atmosphere atomize and they're blown away and the rains never fall back to earth. So there's a frustration there. Oh, maybe we will get rain this morning and then it never comes. How many times have we been frustrated in similar ways here in California? And here the stakes are, are high for a different reason. Every summer it's, it's time to set the state on fire again, right? And whether it's on purpose through arson or whether it's through accidents, our land gets so dry and we've been in a drought for so long that fires spring up again and again and again. 
And I remember times when paradise was, the fire was bearing down on that community. And we were praying, God, bring rain, please. And you'd see a cloud in the sky or a little formulation of clouds and you'd think, maybe we're going to get some rain. And then the rain did not come. And the, the clouds would pass by. They would not produce what you hoped they would produce. And so God's point is that the love of Israel toward their God is like a cloud that never brings rain. At first, it appears to be something of substance, but it proves to be nothing more than a fleeting vapor. Anytime that word is mentioned, probably our minds go back now to Ecclesiastes and our time in that book written by Solomon where the world is described as a vain place, as a place that is like vapor, that seems to have substance and material existence, but it seems to always transition away from us. It is something we cannot grasp. That is like the love of Israel towards their God. There seems to be excitement, enthusiasm at first, but before long it is proved to be empty and hollow. This is not the first example in history when Israel's love for God has proven to be both fickle and unreliable. We think back to the Exodus, where Israel was set free from literal bondage in Egypt. They had found themselves under the, the mighty hand of the Egyptian empire. They had been oppressed as a, a servant people and forced to do great manual labor for generations. 400 years go by before the Lord uh, approaches Moses, who has now left Egypt and is shepherding in the wilderness, and, and tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to declare freedom for my people. Talk to the, the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And when God, through great miracles and signs, makes that come to pass, there's initially a great swell of appreciation. There's awe and wonder for God's work. They, they are marveling at the fact that there is a cloud that leads them by day out of that slavery and, and, a, and a, a pillar of fire that leads them by night. And they resolve to worship Yahweh. But it doesn't take long at all, if you've read through Exodus, for the people to begin to grow unhappy with God. They start to get hungry and they look out. They don't see crops in this wilderness. They see empty lands. And so they begin to long and to cry out for food when God provides manna for them in a supernatural way. They begin to long for anything that is not manna. They want leeks and they want onions like they had back when they were slaves in Egypt. And then they get leeks and onions. And before long, they are longing for quail. They want some protein, some meat. There's this chronic dissatisfaction and desire for something beyond what God has ordained to give. Which is ironic because true satisfaction, we know, Christian, can only be found in God. It isn't found rightly in the things that God gives, but it is found in God Himself. And so here we find a people who are not so different than us, who often fall for the lie that our satisfaction comes in the blessings that God gives instead of coming in the satisfaction of knowing that God is truly our Savior and loves us. The Israelites are given prophets eventually by God who speak His holy words to them. And rather than heed the words of the prophets, they ask Him instead for kings. Give us a king so we can be like the other nations of the world. God says, I am your king. You don't need an earthly king, but they insist and He gives them a king. And then they don't like their kings and so they say, give us other kings. They want different men to lead. They're given support. They're given protection by God. 
And yet they long for different kinds of protection. Instead of trusting in Yahweh as their pillar of support and their defense, they long for the tangible comfort of international treaties with other nation groups. They look to Egypt for help, ironically, years after they were oppressed by Egypt. They look for Assyria and ask for Assyria to promise to help them if they get invaded by someone else. And then Assyria comes eventually and overcomes them. God has given them a model and a command for worship. And yet, even when it comes to worship, they can't be satisfied with doing it God's way. They find themselves unhappy having to travel down to Jerusalem, as we spoke about a week or two ago. And so they make their own high places, and they begin to integrate the modes and methods of worship that characterize pagan worship of false gods that are not even real gods. They are not content with what God has given. And so the love of the Israelites is like this morning cloud. It starts out in a promising way, but never delivers on those promises. The second metaphor is not significantly different from the first, like the dew that goes away early speaks of the dew that forms on the grass as the day begins, but there's cool moisture there. It seems like it's wetting the earth, but the morning sun dries it up almost instantly. It's not substantial enough to feed the crops and to bring a harvest. We might ask ourselves here, friends, why does Israel's love even matter? Aren't we concerned primarily with disobedience? Why does God lament over the love of His people? Hasn't obedience been the focus of the whole discussion? And if you're reading that way, then you've been reading it wrong. Obedience is addressed with vigor because obedience is such an observable metric of love. But let us not get confused. The book of Hosea is not a book primarily focused on behavior modification. It is not Hosea shouting at the people of Israel to get in line and do better things. It is a book about a crisis of love. God chose to frame this whole prophetic discussion of the northern kingdom's issues around a strategically relevant metaphor, and that metaphor was Hosea's own marriage, right? The whole prophecy has this vivid picture of intimate love between a husband and a wife that then turns sour when the wife starts to look outside of that covenant relationship for comfort and peace. God wants love more than He wants obedience. So we must not lose sight of the heart of this matter. God desires to love us and to be loved in a worshipful way by us. That is the core of the covenant that God enters into with man. And so in verse 6, He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What Yahweh is driving at in the critique found in verse 6 is that on the surface, Israel is behaving in some ways that might make it seem that there is a, a true covenant relationship still there. They still call themselves the people of God. They're still offering sacrifices of some kind to God, albeit the wrong kind of sacrifices and in the wrong places. But they're trying, right? Isn't that something? Their culture still bears some of the marks of the unique ways of life that God has prescripted them for, to live so that they will stand out and be different from the peoples around them. On the outside, there are gestures that seem to point to a connection between Yahweh and the people of Israel in the north. But God is saying that that is not what He's been aiming for. He does not desire a superficial connection with people that is nothing more than meaningless cultic activity. What he desires is what is sadly missing from the equation. 
those activities that the Israelites are engaged in are not driven by a heart that loves Yahweh in a worshipful way. Instead, they are only a shell of true covenant relationship. The people do not really know him and the people do not really love him as they should. Now, shouldn't the prospect of an intimate relationship with the one and only creator of the universe be immeasurably appealing to finite creatures like us? When presented with the opportunity to stand near to the greatest being that exists today, why aren't our hearts completely wrapped up in pursuing that opportunity? How can we not drop all that we are doing to focus our every energy upon the prospect of being connected to the architects of all things, who has dominion over all things and is eternally clothed in glory and majesty? How can we be anything less than transfixed upon the blessed opportunity of knowing God and being known by Him? Because we're sinners, right? Because we are lawbreakers at heart. That's why knowing God is to us a thing that we can be interested in for a moment and then set to the side to pursue other lesser things. A similar neglectful emptiness can come to define the people even of today where we see people who are Christian in name, but their hearts don't show a real desire to the Lord God. Their minds don't want to pursue a greater knowledge of Him. They bring some kind of semblance of worship to Him even on a semi-regular basis but there isn't a passionate desire to be close. Let us stop and consider just the love of God for a moment. I want us to think this morning of the depth of it, the breadth of God's love towards His people, the quality of His love, and the weight of His love. The special revelation of God's Word has mercifully revealed to us so much about the character of our holy God let us consider for a few moments what it has to say about God's love towards people. Time that we spend meditating on the love of God is never time wasted, friends. So what sets God's love apart as different from man's love? If man's love is like that cloud that appears like it's going to give rain but blows away before it does anything, how is God's love different? Let's look at a number of ways. God, first of all, is love. Love is not just something that God does. Love is integral to his person and to his character. God cannot not love. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This encouragement comes from the Apostle John, which is significant. In his gospel account, he refers to himself not as John, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John has experience with this love of God through the Son, Jesus Christ specifically. And he writes about the love of God in this inspired letter, 1 John, because it is so important for the saints to understand it. Love is not all that God is, friends but it is fundamental to his being. He's not love in part. He is the embodiment of love. God is simultaneously and perfectly also just and eternal and omniscient. He's also all-powerful. 
So we would be insulting the character of God if we tried to distill God down into something less than he is by thinking of him as only love. But we see here by John's testimony that God doesn't just love. He is the very essence of love itself. God's love is the purest expression of what God can be. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So our only hope of loving one another or of loving God in responsive worship to Him is to remain connected to God who is the source of true love. Love flows from Him. So if you are cut off from God, you can't love really. You cannot love fully. You cannot love consistently. You cannot love in any other way than the way that God has shown the Israelites to be failing in his love, their love for Him. You'll be like that cloud that presents the possibilities of love but eventually fall short. 1 John 4, 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, some people have twisted that scripture to mean that just so long as you love, no matter how, what form that love takes, no matter how you love or what kind of God you say you serve, as long as you're loving, you're connected to God. And they're missing the point entirely. If you want to love, to really love, you must be connected to God. And so that's why when I do premarital counseling, I encourage people, the most important element of your relationship with one another is going to be your, your God's love for you. It's going to be the way that God stays connected to you through grace. That's going to make it possible for you to love one another better. As we are connected to God, so too are we connected with the source of all perfect and true love. So our only hope to be a people of love hinges on our connection and closeness to the God who is love. Israel's failing when it comes to love flows from their unwillingness to draw near to and abide in God. They are not taking Him seriously. They're not caring about His will or His ways. They don't fear Him as they should. As Israel has moved their hearts away from God and towards lesser things, their capacity to love God is diminished because love is from God. And if they drift away from Him, how can they love Him? So God is not just a lover. God is love itself. Secondly, God's love is different from ours because God's love is not motivated by personal gain. Think about that. No matter how noble you are, isn't your love for others in some way motivated by the blessing they are to you. God's love is superior to ours in part because he is so holy and set apart from us in his essence and in his being. We are finite creatures. Our existence is utterly dependent upon things outside of ourselves. If you don't believe me, then there's an experiment you can do right now to, to prove that. Just hold your breath for a little bit, right? Try it. You, you can hold your breath. Maybe some of you are good swimmers or you, you do a lot of cardio work. And so you can maybe hold your breath for a minute, a minute and a half. Some of you, two minutes. But eventually, if that outside oxygen is not coming into you, and if that poisonous carbon dioxide is not extracted from your lungs, you will eventually pass out. And then you'll start breathing again. You don't have full control over that faculty. But that's just one example of how dependent we are on things outside of ourselves to be what we are. And that need 
that outside dependency on others shades our ability to love one another. God, on the other hand, lacks absolutely nothing. Think about the words written in Acts 17 by Luke. It says, Then the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human foods as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's the Apostle Paul as he preaches to some lofty philosophical minds at the Areopagus, this place of gathered philosophy in, in Athens. And he is declaring here that God is unlike any other being because God doesn't need anything. He is absolutely self-sufficient. All good things flow from God. He is the source of them, the first cause of all that is good, and his being, therefore, is not contingent on the presence or the, the complement of any other circumstances. He does not live in temples made by man. God doesn't need shelter or clothing or food. His being is not brought about by our worship of him. And that's part of the argument he makes against idol worship that popped up again and again in Israel is that idols are man-made gods. And as such, they're dependent upon the hands and the minds of men to make them and define them and sustain them. Yahweh has always existed and was in no way formed by man. We only know him because he's revealed himself to us. And so uh, drawing from the tradition again of Ecclesiastes in verse th uh, 14 through 15 of chapter 3, Solomon writes, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So what do we see here from the eyes of Solomon, this wise testifier of God's goodness? We see that God lacks nothing. So the relationship that he is calling you to be a part of is not a relationship that he's desperate for because if he doesn't get you, what's he going to do? That's not how God thinks. That's not how God expresses himself in Scripture. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. It is not because you have something that he lacks that he has drawn you to him. My friend always says to me, God can make the rocks cry out and worship him if he needs to. He doesn't need us. So you do not have to fear. At first, we might feel a little bit like, wow, that makes me feel unimportant to God. I like to be needed. I like people to notice when I'm not around and say, man, life is better when you're around here, when I got your smiling face near to me. So some of us get a little bit offended when God doesn't love us that way, when he's not drawing us near because he needs us. But think about the, the relief of knowing that God doesn't need you and how that affects his love for you. You do not have to fear being more than a means to an end to God. Nothing more than a means to an end. In other words, God's not loving you because he's trying to get to something else. Some of you have been loved in that way before. Somebody seemed to love you at first, but really what you ended up finding out is they loved something about you that gave them pleasure or joy. They loved the people that you were connected to. They loved the finances that you brought to the table. And so they actually were loving past you. You are a means to an end. God is never using you to get something better that he needs. If he chooses to love you, He's simply, purely choosing to love you with no alternative, mo uh, alternative motive. 
You do not have to fear one day running out of what God has loved you for. I, uh, I know that as human beings, our love is not as strong as God's love. And so there are times when people who you usually love push you to your limits. They tax your patience. They stress you out and you begin to ask yourself the question, is it worth it to keep loving this person? The, the joy I used to have in being near to them seems to have dried up and had gone away. That's how human hearts love. We can't help it in some regards, but God never worries about one day waking up and finding out that you, his beloved, are not being what he needs that you are now somehow some burden that is making him less than what he would be otherwise. For God is always good and perfect and pure, no matter what you are. So when we think about the love of God and its, its uniqueness, all things without exception already belong to him. And having things doesn't improve his being. His being cannot be downgraded. God has no needs or deficits for you to fill, when God determines to love you then, you can rest assured that the love that you're being shown is a sincere love. It's not a veiled attempt to only obtain whatever resources you have to offer or, or God trying to upgrade his life by including you in it. Thirdly, God's love makes promises. Promises that God cannot break. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now we've spoken quite a bit lately about covenants, so I don't have to go too in depth here, but realize that covenants are the way that God chooses to interact with his people. And he does that voluntarily. He didn't have to make a covenant with any of us. God has no moral obligation to make promises to us, but since he does, we can trust in his covenants because God never breaks his promises to us. This is how Hosea can interpret or can interrupt rather his own prophecy of woe that is coming upon the nation of the north and then urge them to return to the Lord of mercy. Hosea knows that God's promise includes glorifying himself through the covenant people of Israel. Hosea knows that Yahweh cannot utterly forsake those whom he has chosen, for he cannot break that promise. The nations of the world must be blessed. 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. When we think about human interactions, marriage is a, a man-made organization, or institution rather, that recognizes that covenant love is good, isn't it? Marriage is trying to grab a hold of some of that stability and some of that surety that we see existing between God and man when he covenants with them. When he says, here's how we're going to interact from this day forward. We're going to declare promises to one another. We're going to keep those promises to one another. And if we don't, there will be consequences to that. Marriage is the beautiful thing that it is when people make promises to one another and they keep those promises. It becomes something less than what it is intended to be when we treat it as a cheap thing and when marriage is discarded as if it was only temporarily beneficial for the people involved, marriage becomes empty and hollow when we don't treat it with dignity and respect. God is our standard in that. His love for us is unbreakable. 
Fourthly, God's love is not circumstantial. For this, I'd like to share with you from verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we, de- when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does he do this? He doesn't do, a, do it because we somehow qualified suddenly to be saved. He didn't do it because he thinks if he does this, it's going to change the story and it's going to make his life better. He does it because of his great love for us. Not circumstantial love, but declarative love. God's love's not contingent on any number of factors being in place. He simply chooses to love, and then he loves. He did not love his church because they were the best examples of humanity. He doesn't love his church because they are the most lovable ones. Rather, he loved us while we were yet sinners, bringing us into his family and making us a new creation. And this is hard for us to understand, but very important to having peace with God. He doesn't love you now, Christian, based upon the degree of obedience you exercise toward him as a saved individual. Did you know that? He doesn't love you because you're following the rules now that he's brought you into the family. He loves you because he chose you and he made you his son. He made you his daughter. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How are you righteous, brother or sister? It's not because you're keeping the rules. It's not because you're obeying the commandments. Because you don't do that perfectly, do you? And breaking one little bit of God's law makes you guilty of all the law. James tells us that. So why are you righteous today, Christian? You're not because you're better than the non-believer. You're not because you do all you can to avoid sin. You are righteous Because Christ became sin. He became your sin and allowed himself to be crushed on a cross so that the penalty of sin which you had earned would be rightfully paid upon him. That is why you can sit here in this room today if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and say, I have my faults and my flaws. I am a person in progress. But God looks down and sees me as a righteous saint. Not because of anything that I have done but because of the purchase, uh, the per- perfect law-keeping that Christ did when he was living here on earth and because he stood in my place and took my penalty for sin. That is why God loves you, because of Christ. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our failures are not unimportant, but they are not who we are. For Jesus has died for each and every sin that we've committed. If we are his, we will continue on with him. His righteousness will define us. He is our advocate before the Father and His love is not hinging on our obedience. You're not perfect, but the Holy Spirit that He has granted to you will continue to refine you and to bless you and draw you nearer to the Lord. Romans 8, 35-39, which you heard today at the call to worship. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. You want to be sure, Christian? Paul is sure. 
I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is not sure of that because he's been a good boy this week. He's not sure of that because he's more obedient than Apollos and that other guy, Peter. No. He is sure of it because the guarantee of our place with God is not our love for him. It is his love for us, Christian. There is an aspect of God's love for his people that I have not yet totally mentioned, and that is number five. God's love is sacrificial. Now, I preach this knowing that some of you might not be loved by God in the way that we're talking about today. Some people will come into a worship service and Christ has not died on their behalf. They have not trusted in the blood of the Lamb. And so your sin is on yourself. You have not yet seen your need for God's intervention, that apart from His help, you are doomed. The very thing that makes God so lovable, His holiness and His purity, is the th same thing that makes it impossible for God to be near to us unless our own filthiness and sin are done away with. Knowing that we are powerless to deal with those things, God has been pleased to secure that holiness for us at great cost to himself. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. You often will hear verse 16, but you don't hear what follows. This is important, friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say that everybody's going to have eternal life there. It says whoever believes in him, right? Verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In light of the great love of God, our own efforts to love seem closer to hate, don't they? When you think of this great love that he has given to us, that he would come to earth and take on flesh, friends, that he would leave the grandeur of glorification in heaven, that he would take on a limited form like ours, that he would subject himself to hunger and sleep and weakness so that he would dwell among us and so that he might be able to fulfill the law as a true man. That's what God the Son did for you. He came and put on flesh, became a true human being. And then he lived every step, every movement that you did not have the capacity to live. He obeyed the law on your, on your behalf. If you are in Christ, Jesus' perfect righteousness fulfilled every requirement of the law. And then knowing that you had accrued a debt because of your sin, Jesus, with love, went forward to be punished like a sinful man, like a murderer, like a rapist, like a child molester. Jesus went forth to be crushed on the cross like somebody who was a perjurer and a liar, like someone who was a, uh, who was a forsaker of God. He was crushed in the place of all who would trust in him. And the penalty that he took was severe, friends. Even the Father could not look upon him in that moment. In light of that great love that he was willing to endure that kind of hurt for us, not for his benefit, but for ours, can you see how our love looks so little? How could you have assurance of faith today if your assurance of faith hinges on the quality of your love 
in light of this great love we've seen in Christ. Because of Israel's disregard for God's great love, he has hewn them by the prophets. That means he is chiseling away at what is wrong in them. And it hurts them. They're going to experience a chastisement like they have not felt yet. They are going to lose that national identity that was so dear to them that it became like an idol at times. But because of this great love that God has for his people, those who truly belong to him, that remnant that truly looks to him, even in the northern kingdom, will be brought through this crisis and his love will never be extinguished for them. This corresponds to verse 1 earlier in the chapter where he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. So this is not God's judgment upon his remnant because God's not a judge to them in that way. Those who truly belong to him are no longer under his condemning judgment. They are now a part of his family. They are now children to the living father. And so his authority over them has changed somewhat, hasn't it? Now he is not a third party, detached from the situation, just simply issuing judgment after judgment. Now he is the father who has every intention to raise you up in the truth. And if he needs to give you a punishment so that you'll learn, he'll do it. He'll go to whatever lengths he has to to help you grow. All that is in God's boundless power will be used to make you pure and holy and good. So God's desire is for steadfast love for his people, not only from his people. He calls us in or Israel in verse 6 here to, to worship him in a loving way, not in this empty, superficial way, but he does it because he wants them to know his love. He wants them to be near to this God who loves them and is committed to them through covenant, um, covenant relationship. The solution is only one. They prove again and again that they fail in this. And so God must strive with them until Christ comes, until the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament scripture reveals himself and the work that is done on the cross makes it possible for them to be transformed once and for all. If you are dwelling in sin today, what can God do to you? What must he do to you? There's only two answers to this. If you are in Adam, if you are still carrying the burden of your own sin, then eventually, in time, God will have to judge you. There is no choice. As a God of justice and a God of truth, God will need to judge you and, and, and eternally punish you to the, the penalty that you have earned from your sin. If you are in Adam, that means you have rejected Christ as Savior. You don't believe that He is the Son of God. You have not repented and turned to Him, knowing that only Him can save. Plain and simple, if you're in Adam... That is what lays ahead. I pray that today's exposition of God's holy love for you would cause you to stop, would cause your heart to to beat faster, that you would think about the tragedy that awaits if you are not in God's hands. And I pray that the scripture and the spirit that is working in this room today would turn you towards him. But if you are in Christ, if you belong to that new covenant that was written in the blood of Christ, then he will be a father to you. He will chastise you as harshly as he needs to in order to help you see the love that you are neglecting. But he will never leave you or forsake you. He will grow you up into something better than you are today. He will, by the blood of Jesus Christ, wash you clean and clothe you in a righteousness that you could never earn for yourself. And when the day of judgment comes, he will stand by your side as your advocate.
and he will say, this one belongs with us. As part of the family, they've made mistakes, they have sinned against us, but through the blood that was shed on Calvary, they are pure today, and you will enter into the rest of your Father. We are grateful for the great, great love of Jesus and for the fact that it is in all ways superior to any love that we can ever give to him. Let us not fall into the trap of focusing so much on ourselves that we become anxious about whether our love for him is good enough. Christians not. It won't be. It doesn't need to be. Because through his love for you, he redeems the people for himself. God, we love you and we thank you for the grace that you have given to us this morning. Help us to be in awe and wonder even as we take these elements of the table, Father, as we reflect back on the power that has been brought into our lives. God, we would not have sought you on our own. So thank you, thank you so much for sending messengers to preach the good news to us. Thank you for your word, which revealed to us the truth of who you are. Thank you for convicting our hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit and for quickening us through his work. God, we pray that as we take of these elements, that we would be encouraged and reminded of your great victory. Help us to walk out of this place refreshed, renewed, and ever grateful for the love that you have to give to us. And we pray this in the perfect name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.